Today I'm going to ask somebody from the audience to give me a dollar bill. Who in the audience has a dollar bill they would like to, uh, to give me at this time? Go ahead and, well, I thought so. You're a church, I'm a pastor, and you don't want to give a dollar bill. Oh, right here. Thank you, sir. Yeah, let's give him a round of applause. He's coming forward with a dollar bill. Thank you so much, uh, Lars. And it, this is, a, is this a real dollar bill or counterfeit? I don't. He thinks it's real. Okay, very good. So we have a dollar bill, and, uh, and you realize you gave this to a pastor, you're never getting it back. Okay, all right. Let me ask you a question about this dollar bill as we get started. What is this worth? What is the true value of this, uh, this dollar bill? What is it worth? You say, well, definitely much lower than it was a year ago. Amen, right? We know this, right? We can currently at this rate buy about a half of one egg right there for this one dollar bill. Three ounces of gasoline you can get for one dollar, something like that. Uh, what, uh, what is this worth? That's a tough question, isn't it? Because you say, well, it's worth a dollar. That's what a dollar is worth. But the value of a dollar constantly fluctuates. It changes based upon the economy and other factors, of course. But the value of this dollar is shifting, always. Some of you think this might be some sort of a historic or political speech that begins to talk about the gold standard. That's right, if this dollar was backed by gold, then we would know the true value of a dollar bill. But even gold, what is the value of gold? Like gold itself, what is it worth? Why is it that we as a society have put some sort of intrinsic value upon a metal that we pull out of the ground. Well, you can make jewelry out of it. And silver, silver, you can use it in our electronics and our mechanics. And so there's practical value to it. Well, that might be true, but why? Why do we value it the way we do? This is only paper. Paper which I'll keep. Again, thank you very much. I put it right here for safekeeping. You can see the dollar from the first service. Right there it is. <laughs> and gold and silver and, and, and jewels, these are all things that we ascribe value to and, and they're important to us, but what's the true value? And, and there is a man's perspective of wealth and then there is a God perspective of wealth. And that's what the sermon series is addressing, not wealth, but perspective, the true value of something. In sermon number one from Luke chapter 12, verses one through 12, I shared with you the true value of a human being. We talked about your true value in a sermon entitled, You Are Valuable, the intrinsic value of who you are to God. We, we talked about the fact that God knows all the sparrows in the sky and you are more valuable than they, even to the point where he knows the hairs of your head, you are valuable. Today we move away from the value of a human being and ask the question, what is the value of money? And so Jesus does in Matthew chapter, excuse me, in Luke chapter number 12, number, verse number 13, in a sermon we're entitling Building Bigger Barns. Building Bigger Barns, where Jesus tells a story about a farmer who built a barn and how it rely, relates to your value of money. Look at what the Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, stop, what? If you're studying through Luke chapter 12, you'll see that this is actually very odd because Jesus was in the midst of a sermon 
And as he was talking in the midst of a sermon, somebody interrupted him. And how many of you agree it's rude to interrupt the preacher when he's preaching? Amen? I'm just checking. All right, very good. All right. So he said, Jesus, I know you value us. God loves us, whatever. I have a question. Can you tell my brother to give me my inheritance? That was the conversation. Now, Jesus responds, and look what he says. Uh, Jesus said to him, man, who has made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Jesus said, look, I, I'm not, you realize I'm not an attorney. Like, I'm not a financial expert. I'm a, I'm a homeless carpenter rabbi who travels around teaching people. This is, uh, this is not my wheelhouse, as it were. So Jesus pushes back and says, I'm not going to answer that question about who owes what to what. But then Jesus does say, I've got some advice for you. Look at what Jesus' advice was. By the way, when you hear advice from Jesus, don't you think it's a good thing to listen up? Amen? Amen. So Jesus is not going to interfere with this little matter of how much you owes, whatever. But he's going to get some really good advice. He said to him, take heed, take heed, and beware of covetousness. What is covetousness? Greed. Envy. All right, how many of you, let's be honest with you, how many of you sometimes struggle with envy, greed, covetousness? Even though the Bible says, thou shalt not covet, how many of you have ever done this? You're scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, all of a sudden you see that somebody just bought something that you would like to buy, and you see it and you're like, oh, that's cool, they just, oh, that's nice. And then a week later they get something else and you're like, oh, good, good, good for you. Yay! Hashtag blessed, you know. <laughs> a week later, you're scrolling through, and now they're at Disneyland, and you're like, oh, oh, isn't that nice? Now they're at Disneyland. And they have a new car. And I love those shoes. Yeah, that's nice, yeah. And then you get kind of sarcastic inside, and you're like, you want to post, like, congratulations. Hashtag, I'm saving you if you want. Hashtag Dave Ramsey, hashtag you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and you want to, why? Because you see it, you're like, I wish, I wish I had what they had. And so Jesus says, beware of covetousness. Why? Because he knows human hearts. He knows my heart, your heart, and this guy's heart. He says, so stop, beware of covetousness. Why? He goes on and explains. He says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Your life doesn't consist in the things you own. You are not what you own. Say that with me. You are not what you own. Say it. You are not what you are. Oh, listen, friends. You are not your car. Your car is not an extension of your personality. It's a thing you drive to get from one place to another. You are not your home. You are not your job. You are not your bank account. This is so hard for we as Americans to get our minds around because we actually take intrinsic value and almost our identity in how much stuff we have. And Jesus says, no, you are not what you own. God owns you and loves you. And then he goes on, he goes on to teach, he says. Then he spoke a parable to them. So to prove his point, Jesus always liked to give like a, like a story. Like, I, I, I try to do that, patterning after Jesus. So he gives a story, and he says to them, there was a ground of a certain rich man, 
that yielded plentifully. There was a rich guy who was a farmer, and the ground happened to give a really large crop that year. And he thought to himself, saying to himself, what will I do? I don't even have room enough to store all of my crops. Now, none of us in this room um, don't understand this problem, right? How many farmers in the room? How many of you in this room are farmers? Raise your hand. Are there any farmers in the room? How many currently have a farm? No farms in this room? Of course not! <laughs> because we live in Las Vegas. Not a lot of farmers among us, you know what I mean? So, like, we need a different analogy, maybe something that will help us understand. The farmer had such a big bumper crop, he had so much crops, he could not fit it into his barn. That's like us saying, that's like saying you won the jackpots, all right? I'm a Las Vegan, this is what I understand, you know what I mean? It means you went down to the roulette table, you put, uh, you know, uh, $500 on purple 12, and you spun the thing, right? I'm pretending I don't know that it's black 12. You see what I did there? You spun the thing, and all of a sudden it lands, and your $500 becomes, I don't know, a million dollars! And overnight, you hit the jackpot, and you're given a million dollars. What do you do with it? By the way, somebody just said, spend it. I appreciate your honesty, my dear sister. In the second service, I had somebody shout it out, give it to the church! Liar! I'm like, this is a nerd, no, that's a... But yes, spend it. Like, what do you do? And this is what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus is talking to an agricultural farming society. And so he says, what would it be like if you had such a big bumper crop, you could not even fit it into your barns? For us, he would say, what would it be like if suddenly you had more money than you knew what to do with? Like, you had so much money, your banker calls you and is like, hey, look, we, we can't even handle your money. You've got to get a bigger bank. Like, that'd be amazing. Like, that's not a problem, amen? Like, if your financial advisor contacted you and like, look, I can't handle this much money. You need somebody better than me. Like, whoa! That's the idea. So what would you do if you had all of that money? The Bible tells us what Jesus' story goes on. This guy says to himself, we'll go on to the next uh, slide there. Jesus, this guy says to himself, this is what I will do. Look at his big plan. So much money he doesn't know what to do with. This is what I will do. I will pull down my barns, and I will build bigger barns. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. His big idea was, man, I need bigger barns. And then he says, then I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You've made it. Everything is accomplished. You've arrived. You're never going to need anything. You win. From man's perspective, the guy wins. Because of the way he views money from man's perspective. But look at what Jesus says. But God said to him, You're a fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Tonight you're going to die, and then whose will be the things which you have provided? Great, you got bigger barns. Nice, you got a newer car. Fantastic, you got the big house. Awesome, you've got large accounts with lots of money. Wonderful, you're going to die. What happens to it then? And then Jesus makes his point. 
He makes his point to the man with the bigger barns, and he makes his point to the guy saying, what about my inheritance? And he makes a point to the broader community like you and I. He says in verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward, toward God. This is what it's like when you view your possessions as your possessions and you don't show generosity toward God. Okay, so what does this tell us? It tells us that this man had a problem with misvaluing money. Meaning he had a really difficult time putting a understanding of what money is actually worth. And my big proposition for you today, and branching into next Sunday, is the idea, uh, this big idea, that if you misvalue money, it will ruin you. This message today will be absolutely applicable to every person in the room, but especially if you're a teenager or you're in your 20s. If you are a young adult here today, hear me. These are the kind of biblical principles that will shift dramatically the remainder of your life, if you'll hear that. If you misvalue money, it'll ruin you. If you think of it as too valuable, it'll ruin you. And if you don't see the true value of it, it'll ruin you. So today we're going to ask the question, what is the true value of money from a Bible perspective? If you're ready for it, can I get an amen? Yeah. Amen. Number one, six principles. Today we're going to learn three. Next week, three more. All from the scriptures. Number one, money is good, but it is not God. Say it with me. Money is good, but it is not God. One more time, say it again. Money is good, but it is not God. Money is a good thing to have, but you shouldn't worship it. Money, true or false? True or false, I want you to say, true or false? Money is the root of all evil. True or false? Oh, bunch of arguing in the room. <laughs> the answer to that question is false. Money is not the root of all evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. You say, I believe all money is evil. Well, look, I want to help you. Will you come and give me all your evil stuff? <laughs> I don't want you to go home with any evil stuff. No, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money, it's called greed. Greed is not good. Greed is terrible. It rots the soul and it destroys mankind. And it also dishonors God. Money is good, but it is not. It is not God. And when we forget this, we fall into the trap of greed. Now, that doesn't mean wealth is bad. Wealth is not bad at all. In fact, wealth is a blessing from God. Wealth is good. Poverty is bad. Shocked. There's a Sunday school. What did you learn at church? Poverty is bad. Say it with me. Poverty is bad. Poverty is bad. Say it, say it again. Poverty is bad. Poverty is not a good thing. Some, some of you come from, from some religious traditions where you're like, I think what being poor is what is what I think I think it's what we're supposed to do. Well, it's because we don't study the Bible. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 15. It says, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. But the destruction of the poor is their poverty. Poverty's not good for anybody. You should, we don't want you to be in poverty. We don't want others to be in poverty. We don't want anyone in the world to experience poverty because poverty leads to heartache and starvation and lack of clean water. Poverty is bad. We understand this to be the case. 
uh, wealth is better than poverty. The shocking statements today in today's sermon, right? Wealth is better than poverty. Stay with me. Wealth is better than poverty. Eating food is better than starving. Amen. Wealth is better than poverty. But wealth, here's the problem. Wealth doesn't compare to wisdom. Wealth doesn't compare to good relationships. Wealth doesn't compare to true righteousness. Wealth is not bad, but it's not God either. And what we need to do is understand the true value of all of these things and the priorities. I mean, this is what Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11 says. Wealth is better than, uh, excuse me, wisdom is better than rubies. If you have a choice between rubies and wisdom, go with wisdom every single time. That's what it says in Proverbs chapter 13 or 15 verse 17. Better is dinner where there is herbs and the, and, and the idea is a salad. Better is a dinner of herbs where there is love than a fatted calf where there is hatred. He's saying it's better to have a little cup of salad with somebody you love than to eat a steak with somebody who hates you. That's really hard for me to believe actually because I really like meat. Amen. <laughs> but you see his point? Wealth is good, but there are things that are better than wealth, like wisdom and relationships and righteousness. This is where it's important to understand there's been some bad theology about money that has been taught in the church. One bad theology about money is that is, is what we call prosperity theology. Say it with me. Prosperity theology. Say it again. Prosperity theology. It's taught very broadly in the American church. It's where you hear a preacher, perhaps on television occasionally, and they're going to tell you, uh, God, all God wants to do is bless you. God's, God's big desire in your life is to give you health and wealth and prosperity, and all you need to do is give more. And what God will do is he'll never let you get sick, and you'll never have to find out your crisis, because God loves rich people. Amen. It's called prosperity theology, and it is not taught in Scripture. There's an indication that God only cares for the rich, and if anybody ever experiences poverty, it's because God is angry with them. God loves the rich, and it's bad theology. Does God love the rich? Yes, but God also loves the poor. Prosperity theology, but there's another bad theology on the opposite side of the spectrum. It's called poverty theology. Say it with me. Poverty theology. Say it again, say it again. Poverty theology. This one's not as popular in America, but it has been popular throughout Europe, throughout the Middle Ages. It's the concept of if you really love God, God's number one goal for you is to experience humility and suffering. God really loves humans who suffer. And if, you're, if God's not making you suffer enough, you make yourself suffer. You get rid of everything. You go live in a cave. You pray all day long. Don't eat anything good. If it takes me, throw that away. And I want you to wear a burlap sack. That's it. That's your life. It's called poverty theology. And the Bible doesn't teach this either. God loves the poor. He hates the rich, but he loves the poor. Wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. God loves the rich. God loves the poor. You see, then what is a biblical perspective of money? The answer is money is good, but it is not God. Money is a gift from God, a blessing from God, but it's not to be trusted like you trust God. Why can you not trust money? Here's why. Because money is irreliable. 
if you think you're going to get rich by gambling, you're a fool. You're a fool. They did not build the Bellagio by giving money away. Yeah, right? I'm not saying the guy in Ohio who works hard all year and saves five grand and comes to Vegas and wants to have a good time and blow some money. He's a wicked sinner, he's going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that Vegas people should be smarter than that. Yeah? That if your investment plans for their financial future is to go down, have a few drinks and play, you're a fool and you're going to destroy yourself. Don't do it. Don't, 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 do you see? You see what I'm saying? It's, it's not just gambling in our casinos. It's gambling with really stupid, risky investments. I'm amazed how many young adults, I shouldn't be because we, we have to teach biblical principles. If you think to yourself, if somebody says to you, all you gotta do is just throw in 500 bucks. You throw in 500 bucks right now and like, and I'm telling you like in six months, that $500 is gonna be $5,000. And you're like, well, what am I investing in? And they try to explain it and they don't understand it and you don't understand it. And you're like, but just put in 500 bucks. You're going to lose your money. And then six months later, they're gonna be like, I get it, I get it, but now's the time to put in more. So you go and you scrimp and save and try to take all sorts of stuff from others. And then you buy just as much. And then, then you lose that. And you're like, okay, I know it's like really bad right now, but don't you see last week we went up a little bit? And then you don't understand how it works. They don't understand how it works, but you keep putting all your money. Why? Because you know very quickly you're gonna be rich. Very soon, very soon, very soon. You say, which investment are you talking about? Whichever one you're thinking of. Whichever one you are absolutely, almost pretty good, sure, guaranteed that this is gonna turn out really, really well for you. By the way, when you're talking about people who have made bad investments, every single one of us in this room have made bad investments at some point or another. Be wise, don't do it. Get rich quick. It also includes not just things like that, it also includes friends. See, some of us get a little bit more mature. We're in our 40s now, in our 50s, and we avoid some of those risky investments, and we found the beauty of, of compounding interest in mutual funds, and that's what we focus on, which is all good too, or your own business, or whatever it might be. But then we get involved with friendship investments. You know what that is? That's, that's the guy that always has the new scheme, you know what I mean? Always. They're the kind of guy, they pull out of their pocket a piece of paper, and they've got scribbled with blue ink, $5,000 equals $40,000. And they'll walk up to you, and they'll be like, hey, man, hey, come here, come here. I got to tell you, I got this idea. And I got, look, I'm just bringing my friends in, just my friends, just my friends. And here's what's going to happen. You give me five grand, and then just like, I'm telling you, I could turn around, and in like six months, run from this guy. You say, but we're friends. Great, go to dinner and say, thanks, it's not for me. Do not, do not give him a dime. Over the years in this church, over the last two decades, I've come across two, and I know there are probably more, but I've come across two scam artists, convicts. I didn't know they were. One was named Bill, the other was named Trevor. And they would walk around and they would take people's money. And I came to find out tons of people inside of the church were giving this guy $500, $1,000, $2,000. And why? Because these are the kind of people who look at the church, not as a place to worship God and study the Bible, but as a pool of idiots where they can take their money. You realize there are bad people out there, right? And sometimes they, yeah? So you say, Pastor Josh, 
I'm like that. I'm, that's who I am. That's why I'm here. Okay, good. Let me know who you are and I'll kick you out and you're never allowed to come back. <laughs> you are not allowed to fleece this flock. And the moment I find out you are, I will attack you like a shepherd goes after a wolf. You understand? Not in this church. We won't put up with it anymore. Why? Because there are all sorts of bad investments that take away from innocent people and hurt children, hurt families. So get rich quick is out. What do I do instead of get rich quick? Work hard, get ahead. Look at what the Bible says about this. It says, by the way, let me just stop and ask. Do you guys know, because I, I don't have it in here. Do you know the Bible verse that says, uh, you gotta enjoy your job? Where's that verse? You, you better enjoy your, you gotta enjoy. Do you remember the Bible? Where's it say it? Oh, it's not in there. Where's the Bible verse that says, wish upon a star and follow your dreams? <laughs> show me, like, where is it? You know what the Bible actually says? I'll show you what the Bible actually says. It says, do you see a man who is diligent in his business? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Hey, how about this? How about instead of finding a job you enjoy, how about find joy in the job God gave you? I am not saying out of the 300 people in the room or whatever it is this morning, I'm not saying there may not be one or two of you, maybe five or six, who really do need to end the dead end position that you're in and pursue what you're really skilled to do. That's not what I'm saying. But if half of you are in the room and you're like, I gotta jump from this job to this job to this job, and you're jumping from job to job every six months, every 12 months, every three years, because now you'll find joy here, now you'll find joy here, now you'll find joy here. Maybe what you ought to do is have a little stability and find joy wherever God planted you. Doing that, doing that is biblical. There is no perfect job. I, I, I sit as an interesting perspective as a pastor because I know pilots and doctors and lawyers and businessmen. I also know plumbers and, 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 uh, and garbage men and, and friends of all walks of life. And you know, no matter what job somebody has when you sit down with them, they'll tell you, I mean, there's some great parts of it, but there's some tough parts too. Ultimately, a job is a job. A job is a job is a job. And you have to work hard at whatever job that you have. The Bible says the soul of the slugger desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent will be made fat. You say, Pastor, I don't wanna be fat. No, what it means is blessed. If you work hard, you'll be blessed for doing so. Some never get ahead because they quit too early. Hard work, when somebody says I'm a hard worker, Hard work is more than just expending energy. Hard work is also about longevity. I'm trying to give you a different perspective. Some of you feel like, I'm a hard worker, but you go to be a hard worker for three years in this place, two years in this place, one year in this place, and you work harder in that moment than anybody else, but hard work is not just energy, it's longevity, because it's hard to just stay and keep going and keep going and keep going, but God blesses this kind of longevity. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slothful will be forced into forced labor. Now I gotta just stop and say this. I don't have a lot of time, but I wanna say this because it's part of the principles. Avoid debt and attempt to start investing. If you can't afford it, don't buy it, start investing. I specifically talk to those who are 18 
to 35 in the room, listen to me. If you are not currently investing as much as you possibly can now, start, start, start. There's something magical in the world that God created through mathematics called compounding interest. I, I want you to see this chart because some of you, you never had a economics teacher teach you this. Some of you didn't have a father to teach you this. So let me, let me show you. Acu accumulating $1 million by investing $10,000 annually at 7% 7 annual, 7 annual interest and annual return. 7% is very conservative. And, and you know what's great about this? I'm your pastor. I've got no package to sell you. Right? I, I'm not like, okay, come up forward and sign up and all you can invest with me. I've got nothing to gain other than you having knowledge that is true. If you are so lucky to be a teenager and your parents bring you to church, you are learning something right now that most people your age will not learn until it's too late. Thank God your parents actually love you enough to bring you to church. It takes at $10,000 a month, uh, $10,000 a year, excuse me, at a 7% annual rate of return, it takes almost eight years to be able to invest and raise $100,000. But because of compounding interest, notice how the time frame shrinking, shrinks every single time you need to raise another $100,000. If you leave it alone, you don't touch it, eventually you get to this place at the end of your life where the last six and a half years of your life, you're able to raise close to $400,000 just by your own investments. What's the point? The point is start early, start early. Look at this next chart. The earlier you start to invest as a young adult, when you're 25 years old versus when you're 35 versus when you're 45, and I, it doesn't matter to me if you are a little bit older, if you're middle-aged like me and you've never started investing, start now. Starting now is better than starting later, no matter what your age. And you'll see the natural increase of your investment. You say, well, I don't have any money to invest. Then don't go to Starbucks unless pastor's paying. Can I get an amen? I can afford to, you better, you, you might not. What I'm saying to some of the young adults is this, when you go to get your Chipotle burrito, don't get the guacamole, amen? Genuinely, start cutting back. So, some of the young adults in the room, I love you, and I'm trying to help you. Some of you need to learn how to boil water, put in pasta for $1.50, and then buy $1.50 ragu, and that's what you're gonna eat tonight, the next night, and the night after. And for $3, a dollar a day, instead of spending $40 a day on, on dining out. And you say, what do I do with all that money? Invest it. Do you see? We just blow our money. And so what does the Bible tell us about money? Number one, it's good, but it's not God. Number two, if you want it, then build wealth, but build it slowly and wisely. Don't gamble it away. And then number three, the third principle, I've got six of them, three more next week, but the third principle today is you're the manager, not the owner. Perhaps, one of the most important truths you'll ever learn about money, here's what it is. You manage it, you don't own it. Brother, this is not your dollar, it's my dollar. Can I get an amen right there? Right. And the way you managed it was by giving it to me. Thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So what do you mean manager, not the owner? See, that was the problem with the story of the building bigger barns fella. Look at all these crops, look at all this wealth. What am I gonna do? I know what I will do with that which is mine. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger barns for me. And then I will say to myself, self, 
You have much in store for you. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because he mistakenly thought that his farm belonged to him. The farm didn't belong to him. It belongs to God. Let me say it this way. What you own does not belong to you. What you own belongs to God. It's not, your, it's not yours. It's not yours. Think manager, not owner. Okay, I'll, I'll ask it this way. Um, see this church? This is a building. You're the church, theologically speaking. But the church itself. Us meeting together, we're churching, right? So let me ask you a question when it comes to the church. Who owns the church? God. God owns the church. I'm gonna say who owns the church, you say God. Who owns the church? God. Well, well if you ask a child, um, sometimes I'll speak with a child and they'll say, well, pastor, uh, are you at your church? And what they, what they mean by that is they actually think, like a business, I own the church. I don't own the church. Does the pastor own the church? Say no. Does the pastor own the church? No, I don't know the church. I manage the church. For who? For God. Well, it's your church. You can do whatever you want. I have adults who will say, it's your church. You do whatever you want. It's not my church. It's God's church. So like, let's get real practical about this. What if you came to me and you said, um, what, no, what, different. What if I got up next week and I said, okay, guys, I've been thinking about this church for a while now, and I love that we worship Jesus. Do you love to worship Jesus? Everybody's like, yeah, we love to worship Jesus. But I say, you know, it's getting kind of monotonous. Instead of just worshiping Jesus, I mean, like, that's just one person we're worshiping. What if we started worshiping, like, a few other gods? And I'm like, I got some really cool statues. And, like, and, and I brought a statue, and I put a statue up, and I'm like, this is Zeus. He's historic and really cool, and he throws lightning bolts. We're gonna worship Jesus and Zeus. Also, have you heard about, heard about Thor? He has a movie and everything. We're gonna also worship Zeus and Thor and Jesus. And I, I set up altars to worship all three. Would you be okay with this? And you would come to me and you would say, you say, hey, hey Josh, like, no. We're not gonna be worshiping Zeus and Thor and Jesus. And I looked at you and said, who do you think you are? It's my church. You say, you're off your rocker. It's not your church, it's God's church. And I would want a friend to put me in my place and remind me, this is not mine, it's God's. So for you, I'm your friend putting you in your place. It's not your business. Your house doesn't belong to you. It's not your car, it's my car. I'll do what I want with my car. It's my 401k, it's my bank account, it's my business, I built it. Okay, it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. The Bible's very clear on this point if you're a Christian. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and everything that is his. You belong to him, and everything you hone belongs to him. Therefore, you should constantly be checking in with the owner to find out what you, as the manager, should be doing with your stuff, his stuff. It is no less wrong for me to treat my church and do what I wanna do in my church than it is for you to do whatever you wanna do with your stuff. 
And sometimes you need a good friend to remind you. When you get to a place where you realize, you're right, it's not my money. It's God's. I'm in charge of handling it. It's, it's not my house. God, what do you want me to do with my house? Your house, your house? God, it's, it's, it's not my car. What do you want me to do with your car? God, do you want me to keep this car? Do you want me to get a different car for us? God, I'm really concerned about what I'm gonna do with my finances next year. Have, have you, have, do you have any thoughts? Do you, do you know what I should do with this? I'm thinking about moving this from here to there. Are you as the manager consulting the owner as it relates to what is his? Like genuinely, practically, I think an actionable step I wanted to ask you to take today is some of you need to go home today, open up your computer, your finances, look at your accounts and talk to the owner about what's been going on. Like, like say, God, are you good with this? You good with this? How about the, and when God says, no, don't do that, say, okay, I'm gonna stop doing that. Oh, you want me to do this? Okay, I'm gonna start doing this. Because suddenly, now you have a divine perspective of your temporary world. You'll never understand your true value as a human until you see yourself from God's point of view. And you'll never understand the true value of wealth until you start to see it from God's point of view. And to really understand that true value, you gotta understand money is good, but it's not God. If you're gonna build wealth, build it slowly and see yourself as the manager of his stuff, not the owner of your stuff. Amen? Let's pray. Father.